Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and today I'm joined by Ryan Terry. He is a film critic and screenwriting professor, as well as a regular guest on several podcasts. Ryan, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, Mati. Thank you so much for reaching out to me on Twitter the other week. I'm uh, excited to be here. I uh, am uh, unfamiliar with your show, but now that I know that you're out there, I'll definitely be uh, listening out for your content uh, rolling out here in the future. And you've made it into uh, almost episode 15. So you're, uh, you're definitely making uh, some good headway into your podcast. And, uh, and I uh, just, uh, just uh, here at the very front, just wish you uh, all the best uh, with your brainchild here and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, where you're going to go with it. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking the opportunity to come out here and, or not come out here, but come on to the show and take a chance with me. So I really appreciate that. And I'm hoping you're going to teach me a lot because you definitely know a lot more about the topic that we're about to be talking about than I do. Anytime I can talk about horror, that is uh, something I will always jump at. So I, I, I'm a yes man for anything horror related. So, uh, so I'm, I'm equally excited to be here. As is the routine, I just have to ask, have you ever ran a marathon before? I have never ran a marathon, um, although sometimes after uh, figure skating practice, I feel as though I have ran a marathon because it too can be uh, quite, uh, uh, quite, uh, it's a very, it's very, uh, it's very physiologically demanding. And I can often feel the effects of that, especially after learning something new. But to a uh, but uh, as far as a formal marathon, that is something I have not. But as I understand it, you have. So I'm curious to know what marathons you have ran in. Yeah, I've actually only done one. Uh, last October, I ran my first. Um, I ran at Twin Cities in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and that was it was a blast. Um, and that qualifies me for Boston in 2020. So that will be my next one. Excellent. Have you done the uh, the Run Disney marathons? No, I I was just at an expo though, looking at that, like looking into it, and they seem very fun. Um, like I love the the medals that you get; they're always really personalized each year. And I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for anything Disney, so I've definitely looked into that. It's just the idea of a marathon in humid Florida doesn't totally seem like ideal race conditions. But is there a like uh, figure skating either event or thing that is as, you know, equivalent to a marathon? I, I don't know if that question even makes sense. I'll be honest. I oh. don't watch figure skating outside of <laughs> the Winter Olympics, but that is that is most of the country. And to be honest, it's, uh I did not watch a lot of it either. I fell into it because of uh, just wanting to learn something new. And uh, working uh, uh, with Disney on Ice and marketing, uh, which is also something I do, uh, I was around it a lot. And I just I was like, yo, I'm around this all the time. So I just I want to learn. And so uh, that's what happened. But it's uh, uh, it's I, I can't think of a marathon, although at a competition you might feel like you have because you are skating in different competitions all day long. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> it can be, um, so, uh, probably still not, doesn't require quite the endurance that, uh, marathoning does, but it's, uh, it's a, it's the closest I can get to identifying with, uh, the amount of the uh, effort and time and discipline that you put into running a marathon. 
Awesome. Well, I will take that. So this week we'll be running through Ari Aster's Midsummer. This is his second film after the kind of breakout horror film from last year, Hereditary. We'll warm up with brief spoiler-free thoughts on the film, and then we'll run into spoiler territory where we can talk freely about the film. Excellent. And then we'll round out the episode with our point two section where we discuss what else we've been watching. But first, let's read a synopsis of Midsummer. And I actually like this synopsis quite a bit. It's a bit spoilery, just as a heads up. Um, a couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. Midsummer stars Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, William Jackson Harper, Wilhelm Blomgren, and Will Poulter. And it is, of course, written and directed by Ari Aster. What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. <laughs> Welcome and happy midsummer. Unbelievable. <laughs> Let our feast commence. It's like they're trying to make it gross. What are they playing? Skin the fool. Skin the fool. Gonna ignore the bed. It's a bear. Dude, of all the things to let me sleep through. That sounds fun. So this movie, uh <laughs> holy shit. Is I guess my my first thing. I'm definitely gonna need a lot of help. That is that 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 is perfect. I you know that is what I thought. I, I guarantee you that that is what 80, 90 plus percent of people thought when they left that movie, whether they loved it or hated it. It's just I think collectively it was what the fuck was that? What did I just watch? Absolutely. I know that you have been very ecstatic about the film, you know, all week, and you are a huge horror fan, and you are, you, uh, your focus is in horror when you uh, teach. So before we just dive deeply into Midsummer, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how you got into the horror genre, and specifically what you find so interesting about it. Sure. Uh, this could be an entire show in and of itself, so I'm going to do my best to be as concise as possible. Okay. Unfortunately, concise is... and. Uh, brief are not words in my vocabulary normally, but I will do my very I will do my very best. Sure. I got into horror at a, a fairly young age. Uh, my mom and I would watch reruns of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and my sister and I would watch Goosebumps on Saturdays, and uh, we would also watch uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark on Saturday nights on SNCC on the Big Orange Couch, which unfortunately kids nowadays have no concept of what the Big Orange Couch is or was. Um, so I was exposed to it at a fairly young age. I would rent horror films on occasion from the, well, borrow, check out from the local public library. And uh, one of the first uh, horror films that I saw was Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, which I had the pleasure of talking about on uh, the Cinemus podcast a, a couple of weeks ago. So we were able to dive deep in The Birds and Jaws. Uh, Jaws is another one that I saw very early. 
And there was just something about the feeling I got when I watched them. As an adult, uh, as a professor, I'm able to analyze what that is. But as a kid, I'm not busy analyzing. I'm just busy having fun. And every time mm. I watched a horror film, I, I had lots of fun. There was something about the energy in the room, connecting with other people that are experiencing the same thing at the same time, uh, living vicariously through these characters on the screen, and coming away with not only a psychological response to the movie, but horror stands unique in that in addition to the psychological response that we have, there's also a physiological response. That physiological response is screaming, is gasping, is jumping. And the only other genre to share that is comedy. Of course, the physiological response is much different in comedy. But I would say that horror has an even stronger relationship between the audience and the screen because sometimes you just can't look away. It truly hooks you. And it's the best genre for creatively exploring the human condition. And it's also the one that is the that is best experienced in a group setting. There is a kinetic energy uh, in everybody. There's an energy that is unparalleled by you know, any other cinematic experience. And uh, these are movies which have largely uh, built uh, American cinema in general. These were some of the first films that were created. Uh, Universal Pictures largely responsible for uh, the introduction of the American horror film into our zeitgeist. And they've given us some of the most memorable characters of all time. My favorite horror icon is Freddy. Freddy is just so much fun to watch. It, we're not going to count the 2010 remake. That doesn't exist. So everything okay. else, everything <laughs> else exists. And uh, he's 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 fun to watch. He's scary. I what my favorite quote of his is in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors, where he uh, he picks up the girl who wants to uh, be an actress, be on TV, and he says, "Welcome to prime time, bitch!" and you know shoves her head in the TV. Absolutely love it. <laughs> so if you had to pick, you know, just like the best intro into horror, if there was you know one film or one film series that you think did the best job at showing what horror has to offer, what would that be? Because it does seem like for every great horror film like uh, Midsummer or all the other ones that you mentioned, there's like 50 low budget ones that are just <laughs> bad. Uh, I get asked this quite often. Uh, I have a couple of responses when asked for a gateway horror film or a good horror movie for somebody who's wanting to see if it's a genre that they may get into. And one that, uh, a couple that I, I often recommend, uh, Gremlins, which I actually tweeted about today because I have surgery in the morning. So when the, when the nurse told me, now no eating or drinking after midnight, the first image that <laughs> pops into my head is Gremlins. She had to know. <laughs> I, I, I certainly hope so. The, actually, the nurses I had this morning at pre-op were, were really fun. And one of them told me that I needed to be her best friend because she just got divorced. And I said, great, guys always dump me. So why don't we go out and we'll go travel together? So, um, <laughs> so it was a great, um, uh, it was actually, uh, it was fun in pre-op, which you don't normally put pre-op and fun together. But I was just on, on a roll with the, the, the two nurses that were in there with me. Um, but Gremlins is great. I'd say uh, another one, another good one is Edward Scissorhands. Uh, which uh, can be characterized as horror adjacent. 
So that's a very fun one. I recently visited a lot of the filming locations from Edward Scissorhands because it was mostly shot here in Tampa, just just north of the city. So I had a friend from Germany visiting me, and uh, he wanted to go to the sets, and so we went to the sets and we took pictures of what it looks like now and compared it, you know, to the screenshots from the movie. Um, Edward Scissorhands is a really good one. A Nightmare Before a Nightmare Before Christmas. It's another really good one. Hmm. I don't know how much I would consider that one really horror. Well, actually, all three of those, I guess, I, I've seen, uh, well, I haven't seen Edward Scissorhand, but I've definitely seen Gremlins and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, or I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas. They're um, horror adjacent. So that's okay. why I recommend them as gateway uh, horror. Um, uh, the last year's, or was it, was it last year? Yeah, last year's The House of the Clock and Its Walls. That's another really good intro to horror. And on a, um, I guess on a little heavier note, uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark that's coming out here really soon, it looks to be on the heavier side of gateway horror, but it has a PG-13 rating. So it could also perhaps, I haven't, obviously haven't seen it yet, hasn't come out, but it looks to be like one which could be characterized as a good um, intro horror. So, uh, so that's just a lot of different, a uh, lot of different angles uh, to approach the genre from. I certainly wouldn't recommend anybody starting uh, with Exorcist, even though I absolutely love Exorcist. Uh, so you might have to work your way, work your way up to that. Uh, if you want to watch the film, which is considered to be the first modern horror film, it is arguably Hitchcock's Psycho, and I, I think that one can even get people into the genre. It might also get them uh, afraid to uh, to take a shower. Uh, Jaws, maybe that's another good uh, gateway uh, horror film because it is definitely horror, but it's not it's not extremely violent, and it has amazing characters and a great story. Uh, so uh, so yeah, those are uh, just uh, so if anybody's listening and you're looking for gateway horror, hope you wrote those down or else go back and uh, listen to them. But that gives you I don't know like like you know ten or a dozen uh, different ones to check out. Yeah, great. So then let's move on to Ari Aster a little bit. Uh, where in the horror spectrum does Hereditary lie? Uh, Hereditary. It's, uh, I, I would say on a... Adjacent? <laughs> no, I mean, it is, it's definitely, it's, it's supernatural horror. Uh, like uh, Exorcist is supernatural horror. Um, and then there are uh, other examples as well. Uh, the Poltergeist, supernatural horror. So I would put uh, uh, Hereditary up there. Um, uh, Hereditary was my, was it number two? I think it was my second favorite movie of last year. I thought it was uh, just incredible what uh, Ari Aster did with it. Toni Collette was robbed of all the you know, big, you know, big nominations. I know she got you know, the uh, Critics' Choice, which was uh, you know excellent win for her. But uh, there are parts of that movie which are utterly terrifying. And it's not always what you see, but your imagination fills in the gaps. And sometimes when it's your imagination that fills in the gaps, if not most of the time, that's where the true terror lies, because then it becomes very personal. It's like when you're reading a book and you have all this nightmarish imagery come into mind. In addition to seeing scary imagery on the screen you're filling it in with terrifying imagery in your mind and so you put those together and it really uh packs a punch uh and it's 
you, you find it uh, very prevalent or in uh, high concentrations uh, in psychological horror films. So this is, it's like one part psychological, one part supernatural, but those elements were woven together in a brilliant fashion, which gave us not only a beautiful uh, horror film, which uh, had so much to offer the world of the art of motion pictures, uh, but it also provided us with a very real gritty uh, commentary on dealing with grief and other familial conflict. Yeah, I thought Hereditary was just absolutely bananas when I saw it. Like I said, I'm not super versed in horror, so it was like, uh, I don't even know why why I saw it, why this one sought me out, mainly because it seemed to have that sort of stamp of approval that was not it's not just a a horror film right maybe that's that's more condescending than i mean it but i mean (laughs) it's it's not you know your january horror release that you know everybody goes to see because they need time to spend in the evening hereditary was definitely a trip and definitely something that sat with me for a little while that's great uh do you know why that there are so many quote-unquote uh you know, bad horror movies, you know, why they seem to be so prolific in number. Uh, do you know? I'm assuming it's because they're just so damn cheap. So it's a real easy way to get a return on investment. That's pretty much it. Yeah, they're extremely bankable. And in addition to having being able to do a lot with a low budget, uh, it's also one that is guaranteed to make it, it is it's you know, there are no guarantees in life. But if there was a such thing as a 100 percent guarantee, this would be pretty damn close because horror yeah. movies are going to make their money in the theater. They're going to make it back on video on demand. A bad horror movie can be a lot of fun to watch. I've certainly seen my share And very rarely have I watched one that is just completely devoid of anything enjoyable at all. There are some, but for the most part, even a bad one, I I enjoy because I I like I I like the feeling that it gives me. It's uh, I guess how what some people find in comedy, I certainly find in horror. I'm to be honest, I'm not a big comedy fan, so uh, horror is uh, you know definitely my jam. And is uh, the majority of my uh, you know, the majority of my movie watching taste, uh, but they're uh, it's fun and it's great when we have thought provoking films. It really is, but yeah. it's also equally great when we just have one. We can kick back and have fun. Going to the movies is supposed to be fun, and I feel strongly that horror is. Uh, significantly response uh, significantly more responsible than other genres for the amount of fun that we can have at the cinema and the amount of fun that we can have at home when we're uh you know uh when your date actually comes home with you if it's successful which is unlike mine because they're never successful <laughs> or when you are um sitting uh, uh you know just your friends or family i used to have uh i called it macabre movie monday and it started in grad school and I would invite my friends over to my house every Monday to watch the film that I needed to watch for um, for my class. And we did it uh, all throughout the semester. And even after I was done with that class, we had so much fun doing it that we continued doing it for a couple more years. I- I'd say we had pretty regular Macabre Movie Mondays for about three years. Great. 
So let's move into one of those, uh, what I would definitely call a macabre Monday movie. So Midsummer, what is your summary of Midsummer? Oh, Midsummer. Uh, Midsummer typifies that Latin inscription around Leo the Lion in MGM's logo, Ars Gratia Artis. Uh, do you know what the uh, Do you know what the Latin means? No, some maybe something about indulgence and then free art. I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, uh, art for art's sake is a Ars Gratia Artis. And that is the first thing that I thought of after What the Fuck. So after that, it's like, I thought, <laughs> wow, this is, it is such a work of art. And, and I don't want to get into the whole well, art subjective and whatnot. Let's just, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it is it is a masterful creation. A, a great follow-up to Hereditary. Both deal with grief, but this takes grief, uh, dealing with grief even further, adds in uh, relationship revenge, and even comments on drug culture. Uh, when I describe Midsummer, I do describe it as a film, not a movie. In casual conversation, I use film and movie interchangeably all the time. I mean, we all do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do differentiate between them when I'm wanting to make a point about the quality. Uh, in short, I feel that film is attributed to a motion picture, which has a which uh, contributes significantly to the art of motion pictures. And I reserve movie for those that are just purely entertaining. And there's nothing wrong with that. I am not diminishing entertaining movies. I I enjoy those, but that's the difference. I feel one is just pure entertainment, and the other, albeit could still be entertaining. Uh, is contributing to the art of the uh, creation of motion pictures. Uh, This is the type of film that reminds us of the power of the moving image. Although it was predicted by and then confirmed by the director to be a companion piece to Hereditary, um, there's little similarity except for those themes that I pointed out earlier. Hereditary is very dark. Midsummer is very bright. And I love the contrast of colors uh, in... In Midsummer, uh, you could also characterize it as a drug-induced uh, reality that creates a fever dream-like state of being. It's very trippy. It's a unique cinematic experience. I've never experienced anything like this uh, before. So anybody going into it should know that you're going to get something that uh, unlike anything that you've witnessed on screen before. Yeah, I was uh, when I got out of this movie, I was a little worried. Because I had seen so many people so ecstatic about it and so many people absolutely in love with it. And I was like, oh, crap, did I miss something? Is it is it not working for me? And I sort of started to mull it over. And as I was like preparing for this and writing down my thoughts, I just kept thinking of more and more things, more scenes, more things that it did well, more things that like when I thought about it, it was so smart. And I'm being incredibly vague on purpose. But on for I mean, this film is also just, it's just so stressful watching it. It's it's a little nauseating throughout it, um, especially that final 30 minutes. And especially because this film is quite long. Uh, it's over two hours. It's like almost two and a half hours. Um, there are there were definitely moments during the movie that I was like, I I need this to stop. I need I need some, like a breath of fresh air or something. And I think that that um, atmosphere was very purposeful, especially uh, how it parallels the feeling of grief and the feeling of constant dread. 
Um, but so when I originally left the theater, I was like, I don't know if I like this that much. But now as I'm thinking back on it and I, I'm writing about all the things that I want to talk to you about, I was like, no, this this film is fantastic. I, I don't can't think of the last time that I've been able to scribble down so many things that uh, connected with me so well. And so I do think I absolutely love this film. But at the same time, I don't know if I ever need to see it again. So, um, you know, if if you invited me to a macabre Monday and this was the film, I might uh, second guess. I would probably come to be polite. But like, I I mean, it, it's definitely a film that is um, very worth watching. But it, to me, I found it to be uh, a bit difficult to to watch. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, there are definitely times in the movie uh, that uh, made me feel incredibly uncomfortable. And it's like, what am I watching? Uh, but I, I'm drawn to it. Uh, it's uh, the uh, it's what uh, Carol Clover describes as the pleasurable unpleasure. And so we get pleasure from from that which would otherwise be repulsive. Interesting. And, yeah. Yes. You could even uh, add in a little bit of Freud's uh, study on the uncanny, the return of the repressed, the re- uh, re- the revealing of that which should have remained hidden. So uh, so with both those filters on, you know, I, you know, go into this, uh, go into this movie and 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 I see that. And and but I love that about horror. It's like I should be repulsed by what I'm seeing, but I absolutely love it. Yeah, you know, there's this masochistic nature to horror. Uh, which is um, which is addictive, uh, like uh, like a teenager who just discovered masturbation. So you have this uh, masochistic, uh, you know, uh, p- part of your mind that's deep down that it's getting satisfaction from uh, from seeing this or from doing this. And uh, the the moments that I know you're not mentioning because of spoilers, but the moments that I'm pretty sure I know you're talking about uh, was was very much that it was like a, a almost like a train wreck. You could not uh, turn away from it. It's like oh, I need to turn away. I need to turn away. Why am I watching this? I want to watch this. I want to watch this. And it just it sucks you in. And and that's the magic of, of a horror film. And and you don't you don't find that in uh, you know, other genres. It's like this is so hard to turn off. Because I, I imagine this is the movie that is uh, that if you were to watch it at home, that uh, you would simultaneously want to turn it off, but then you want it to keep going. And mm-hmm. and and it's uh, uh, brilliant writing and the the cinematography and the colors, just everything works so well in this movie to keep your eyes glued when we've just seen something that we don't ever see in movies we don't ever see in cinema i mean not really even like obscure cinema this is not imagery you typically see but uh but we love it i think another thing to point out before we can get into spoilers is you touched on it briefly but i thought the cinematography was fantastic and it's so fantastic that it's not i mean cinematography is not something that i'm usually able to pick up on but there are so many long shots of just kind of following characters or being wide, widely zoomed out on an open field. And there's so much going on. And there's two characters that are interacting in the foreground and somebody is walking in the background. And it's so perfectly done that it just completely captivates you and you're completely enveloped in the dialogue. And my actually my favorite part of this film 
was like the opening 15 minutes before they even get to Sweden. Oh, yes. I think that's like tells us a little bit about what my taste is, but it also says that Ari Aster is delivering so much more than just horror and horror elements, like just the filmmaking present at all moments in this film, I think is is fantastic. Yeah, there there is a rich, immersive nature in this film that is inescapable. And, and you've yeah. uh, touched on all of that. Every scene is crafted with such a commitment to the art of visual storytelling that the plot ostensibly takes a backseat, which is usually kind of a negative for me because I... You know, I like having strong plots, strong characters, but because of everything else that this film was offering me in terms of the art, I was okay that the plot really is not that great. Uh, so it yeah. takes a it takes a backseat, but it it works uh, in this film. Um, if I were to compare this film to literature, and which is a great class by the way, so if you're listening and you ever have the opportunity to take a film as literature class, definitely take it. But if I were to compare this to literature, I would compare it to a poem versus prose. Uh, both poems and prose tell stories, but poems are emotionally driven, whereas prose is plot driven. There is clearly an emotionally driven motion picture um, in Midsummer that will have you along for this pleasurable, unpleasure ride for, as you pointed out already, this rather lengthy runtime. Each and every frame is an artful expression of the emotion of the moment, and it may either delight or rock you to your core. Yeah, well put. <laughs> definitely, definitely that uh, like dichotomy of the delight versus rock you to your core is something that you need to be aware of. Yeah, because parts of it are funny. Yeah, exactly. That uh, I had a few people on film Twitter uh, talk to me about. It's like, do you think this is a a horror comedy? And it's uh, there's not enough comedy in it to where yeah. I would describe it as a horror comedy, but it has a lot of comedic moments. Had it not been in there, I don't think we may be talking as favorably about this film as we are. Comedy is a very important component uh, in horror uh, because you you need that uh, you need a little bit of break, and that's one thing I love about Freddy. You know, Freddy gives us you know uh, you know classic horror slasher, but Freddy also gives us great laughable lines and moments. So the the comedy is important, and I'm glad uh, it was in here. Uh, but I would characterize it you know as an art house horror film with comedic elements, not you know, a horror comedy. Yeah, especially for this film, because where a lot of films, like I'm thinking Jordan Peele's Us, don't get horror-y until, you know, after the first act or so. Well, I mean, that one does a little bit, but a lot of films, they sort of like lull you into this false sense of security and then kind of snap your neck. But in this one, because of the the way it's set up and the fact that it's dealing with grief, it's sort of... Um, if not terrifying, at least unnerving and upsetting for its entire runtime. Um, so I think that it's it's really good that they have those lighthearted kind of comedic beats. And I think a lot of that comes from Will Poulter, who's fantastic in this. Do you want to say anything about the acting and then we can hop into spoilers? Yeah, uh, I think the uh, most notable performance is Florence Pugh's. She was Easily, yeah. incredible. Uh, 
because Tony Collette didn't get her nomination last year, it kind of provides me with evidence that, you know, Pugh may not get a nomination either. But, you know, I don't care. I tell people all the time, whether talking acting or best picture, director, some of the movies that have been the most influential in cinema, the ones that have a heavy presence in our zeitgeist, don't have Oscars at all. Kubrick, Hitchcock, Carpenter, Craven. You know what? They are some of the most influential directors we have ever seen, and not only for horror, but for cinema at large, and none of them have an Oscar. Some of the best you know, actors of all time do not have Oscars. And so I, I, I try to convey to people, just be, the Oscar doesn't mean that you are going to stand the test of time. Uh, that, 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 that is for history to decide. And so whether or not she gets a nomination does not take away from her outstanding, gut-wrenching performance in this film. Uh, she stands out to me more than anybody else. Will Poulter uh, did his Will Poulter thing, and he yeah. consistently knows how to make us laugh. But other, otherwise, I don't really... Not a lot of the performances really stick out to me. Uh, I, I feel that she... Uh, she really is the strongest, uh, and uh, Will's good, um, but it it's, didn't have quite the caliber of acting, by and large, as Hereditary did. Of course, in Hereditary, we really only have, like, three people for most of the movie. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, and, and all three of the performances are excellent. And in this, we have a couple of, uh, you know, we have an excellent performance, a very good performance, and then a bunch of that's just good. Like there's, uh, I, I, there are no bad performances in the movie. Nobody's performance took me out of it, but, uh, she certainly stands out compared to the rest of the performances, uh, in the film. I like, I always like seeing Jack Rayner just because the first time I ever saw him was in Transformers, the one with Mark Wahlberg, not the newest oh. one, but yeah. Yeah. And so when I saw him in that, I was like, this guy's got, like something that makes me like watching him. I don't know why, but I was like, why is he in this crap movie? And I always really enjoy seeing actors that I first see in a terrible movie go to better things. So then he was in Sing Street and I thought he was fantastic in that. And I like him here. Um, but he clearly doesn't have as much to do as Florence Pugh. And she, yeah, she just acts circles around everybody else. And then the other person I wanted to shout out is the the last person in that group. I don't actually know the actor's name, but it's Cheaty from The Good Place. And so when I saw him, I was like, oh, it's Cheaty. Have you seen The Good Place? No, no, I haven't. Oh, it's a comedy on NBC. It's actually very, very good. I, I love that show. But he's, uh, I mean, he's a like academic in that show as well. But uh, it's it's just funny to see him in a horror thing when you're so used to him being this like, dweeby guy on a sitcom so um all right yeah let's move on to spoilers then if you had to give this a score out of 10 what would you give this and then maybe just like a closing statement oh sure i i don't award uh uh 10 out of 10 very often and, and i don't think i'm gonna uh award a 10 out of 10 here as much as i think everything works absolutely brilliantly uh i it's it's a solid 9 out of 10 for me so it scores very high because, because all the elements are executed with precision, are executed with excellence. 
And I think uh, with Hereditary, Hereditary last year, I think I gave it an 8 or a 9 out of 10 as well. So it's, uh, so yeah, I'm uh, very comfortable awarding it with a 9 out of 10. Awesome. And I'm going to just be a little bit lower, I guess, an 8 out of 10, mainly because my 9s and 10s tend to, I'm a sucker for those films that I just love in spite of their flaws, as opposed <laughs> to ones that um, maybe technically better, I suppose, but it's my rating system, so I can do whatever I want. That's right. But, you know, I, I think this movie is absolutely fantastic. I don't know if I would um, like go out of my way to recommend it to people just because it is a very specific type of film. But if anybody was even remotely interested in the film, I would be like, yes, go see this. It's great. And I think if you have somebody to talk to about it, that will make the experience all the more rewarding. I saw this movie by myself and it was oh a terrible. Yeah. <laughs> It was a terrible movie to see by myself because there were things that happened in the corner of the screen and I wanted to turn to the person next to me and be like, you saw that. Did you see that? Did you see that? And I couldn't. So I, I just kind of had to sit on my hands and be like, oh, I need to write this down and ask somebody on Twitter or something. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I too saw it by myself because I, one of my regular movie buddies uh, does not particularly like horror either. I knew she was not going to watch this movie. So I'm like, okay, so it's just... <laughs> It's just going to be me, and uh, I, I'm friends with the box office manager, front of house manager at the at the movie theater I go to, and so even if I'm there by myself after the movie, I always come back out to the lobby and I chat with her. It it is important to talk about. I mean, you can you can say it's important to talk about just your experience at a movie in general, whatever it is, but especially with a movie like this, which has so so which is so very thoughtful that you want to talk about it. You want to share, you want to explore it. And uh, having somebody there uh, is really nice. Uh, but when you don't, you could always find somebody to talk about, whether it's the manager at your local movie theater. If you go there as often as I do, you get to know everybody. Or it's uh, your friends on Twitter. Uh, but it's fun because you you have these thoughts and you want to you you know, organize them and evaluate them and weigh them against other people's opinions and that's it's it's so much fun when a movie has the ability to do that and i i have found uh other than one person i follow on twitter who did not like it at all um you know everybody else you know i've enjoyed the conversations i've had with them talking about uh, our experience in watching this film but uh earlier you mentioned i don't know if i'd want to watch this twice it's interesting because I hear that from a lot of people. I it was uh, I was listening to Mike Mike and Oscar earlier today, and they were saying the very same thing. I don't know if it's like I really liked it, but I don't know if I you know, want to watch it again anytime soon uh, because it, it it is so very heavy. So I think a lot of us are experiencing that that same feeling. Is you know, you know, see it once, it's great. You know, we'll, we'll rate it 8, 9, 10 out of 10, you know, whatever. But at the same time, it may not necessarily be one that has rewatchable value close to when you're first watching it. I, it has a lot of academic value, so I think it's going to pop up in film studies classes in the future. And it has rewatchability, um, but I, I don't think it's strongly rewatchable so close to the original viewing. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's jump into spoilers now. I'm going to say spoilers for Midsummer starting now. That's my secret, Captain. 
I'm always angry. Do you have something specific you want to talk about in spoilers? Uh, uh actually, I'd, I'd be interested to hear uh, to hear your thoughts. Uh, since uh, be, coming from a, um, I'm gonna say horror newbie, but someone who isn't as uh, involved with the genre as I am, I, I'm really curious uh, what your thoughts are on uh, this uh, spoilerific content, especially when we get into the uh, kind of the the depths of the heat of the occultic activity. So, like, what, uh, like, uh, so just uh, uh, what what are what are your thoughts on on everything? that you witnessed uh i mean uh, starting i mean starting with the beginning i mean that first 15 minutes and, and then you know we have uh the, the sacrifice and there's just so much to talk about that um but uh but i think you're coming at it from a unique perspective uh because uh, you don't watch a lot of horror films and yet you pick this one so uh <laughs> what are the what are the elements that really stick out to you yeah, so that i mean yeah that's a great question the i guess we can just sort of go sequentially and then see where it takes us. The first thing that I mentioned that I, I, I really loved was this idea of this relationship that's clearly a toxic relationship, but it's not an obliquely top toxic relationship in the way that a lot of film relationships are. I've always thought when I'm watching films how um, unrealistic the interactions between boyfriend and girlfriend are, and I felt that this relationship that they were developing this idea of somebody who's clearly stricken by grief and clearly in a relationship with somebody who's not a good person but also not you know a disney villain or like an 80s overly awful terrible person um i thought the the idea of their relationship and sort of the 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 false codependence of the two was really a unique place to start the film and there's this one scene that um danny is florence Pugh's character's name she comes into the room and she is kind of asking jack jack's character Kristen or christian sorry christian she was like hey i didn't know you were going to sweden and he was like oh well sorry sorry i didn't tell you and they're kind of standing opposed from each other and he's on the left she's on the right and then he says, you know, they're arguing a little bit and he says, maybe I should go. And he starts kind of walking away and she grabs him and she's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. And as she says, I'm sorry, they completely flip positions in the shot. And I really loved that just visual metaphor of, oh, now she's the one apologizing for um, something that she was originally upset about. And I think that that has happened in relationships that I've been in. And I've been on both sides of that where I've been the person that for worse has been the one that's made somebody apologize for feeling bad and have been on the other side of that. So I thought that that idea of the, the relation politics of this film were really, really smart. Yeah. The, um, that we not only, uh, get, uh, to know a lot about the relationship in a relatively short amount of time through what they say to one another, uh, but we get it through their body language and we even get it through the character blocking. And so within, yeah. 10, 15 minutes, you know, we know, we know everything that we need to know about their relationship. And you make a really good point. This is a toxic relationship. However, it's not an abusive relationship. Uh, maybe one could argue that there's some degree of psychological abuse, but I even think that's probably 
uh, kind of grasping at straws. There doesn't seem to it's not an abusive relationship, but it's still very toxic and they're not they're clearly not meant to be together. I mean, I wonder how have they been together for this long? Because they, they, I think they even comment that they uh, haven't had sex ever, or certainly not in a long time. So it's not even a physical thing. So why, like, how are they still together? I mean, they obviously offer each other something, but you know, what are they offering? And we can only, uh, we can really only speculate. But uh, how that, re- how that relationship dynamic uh, is revealed to us. Uh, is brilliant, especially after the aftermath of her walking in on her sister and her parents uh, in a what looks to be a murder suicide, and yeah. she just completely spirals out because he was accusing her of basically crying wolf all the time before this, and and he was tired of the relationship. His, his friends don't even seem to like her, and then she goes through this, and he's like, oh, what am I supposed to do? And he, I mean, he. I mean, he does the right thing, but for the completely wrong motives. Like he goes and, you know, consults her, but he's, his heart is not in the right place. He's just going through the motions. It's very empty. On the outside, we see a, uh, just a dysfunctional relationship at best. But then the close, the, the closer we look, we just see how completely and utterly empty it is. Um, on the topic of the, uh, murder suicide and uh uh this was brought out in uh mike mike's oscar show earlier today so i want to give them credit but it really got me to thinking uh, is that um that it's entirely possible that the that it, that this whole thing has been set up from the very beginning everything from the murder suicide to um Danny becoming the May Queen, and then uh, then the the sacrifices and and everything else we see, uh, because of just how all the pieces fell into place. It is almost too perfect, and I don't mm-hmm. think we will ever know if the the friend uh, got with the commune and like they set this whole thing up because uh, they wanted this specific girl. As their May Queen. So since this girl, uh, who already has attachment issues, uh, if she were to lose her family, what's the first thing that she's going to want? Right. She's going to want to go with her boyfriend and be with her boyfriend and head to the trip. And she's looking for attachment. Right. She's looking for attachment and she finds that in a cult. And uh, over the years, through true crime stories and through media and through fiction and nonfiction movies, uh, what is the one thing that we've learned about a cult? Whom do they prey on? I, I actually don't know that. <laughs> okay, uh, they uh, they prey on uh, the weak-minded and they prey oh, on right. those who are looking to complete themselves in other people. And so they are right. a half a person looking for somebody else to make them whole and they are drawn to this community because this community makes them whole but uh, they're still just a shell of a person and so she's looking for a family because she just lost hers and there's just a lot of coincidence here that it just makes you wonder was that murder suicide set up by the friend you know through the commune 
Uh, it's, I know it's a, it's a little far-fetched, but it, it's fun to think about anyway. You know, was it set up uh, from the very beginning? And th- those moments are scary. I think even more than the sacrifice, which I know we'll get to, uh, that her sister sitting there with the uh, the garden hose or you know a conduit, whatever was coming off the tailpipes from the cars all the way into the bedroom taped under her face... We've seen suicides in films before in which somebody, you know, is running, you know, the, the garden hose of, uh, you know, exhaust fumes into the house or whatever. We've never seen anything this intense. That was scary as fuck. Completely terrifying. <laughs> and just that, that yeah. it's taped to her mouth that I'm like, it was at that moment that it's like no holds barred. This movie uh, is going to go any and everywhere it can to be as unnerving as possible. And the fact that this all happened before A24 presents Midsummer, that it, it's like 10 minutes where all of this happens and you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> if this is the first 10 minutes, they're not even in Sweden. What the hell is going to happen in Sweden? Yeah, it, it's like Wes Craven's Scream. Uh, Scream is known for not only being one of the best uh, openings in a horror movie ever, it's often touted as one of the best openings in a movie ever. And, I mean, all everything happens uh, with Ghostface and Drew Barrymore, but what, with, within 10 minutes. Uh, it's a different pacing, a different, you know, it's, uh, it's inter- you know the, uh, the terror is interpreted differently in uh, Midsummer versus Scream, one being a more traditional slasher. But uh, I, I like um, I, I like that it has that. One of my favorite things about Scream, and the, I mean the whole thing is great. But I I love pointing out the the opening sequence with Drew Barrymore. It's so memorable. It compl- it hooks you into the movie, much like this one does with uh, Florence uh, Pugh, uh, Danny and her family. I mean, within 10 minutes, 15 minutes before the title card, you are sucked in. You are hooked for the ride because right. you have just seen something that just utterly blew your mind like Hitchcock did with the shower scene in Psycho. You, you really do not see it coming, especially so early on in the story. Yeah. And so then after that, though, we kind of get to this first segment of where it sort of isn't traditionally scary in any way there's still like kind of an ever-present sense of dread but it's not really until that suicide scene or the the sacrifice scene that anything truly terrifying happens unless i'm remembering wrong um but i noticed that 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 the, the film um for the most part has a very flowery uh like presentation to it so it's like you you're you're on midsummer it's the longest day of the year it never gets dark it's bright outside it's beautiful and to me I was trying to reflect as I was thinking about this that that seems to be very much like what grief is like regardless of your surroundings regardless of if everything in your life is bright and happy and beautiful you are still silently suffering yeah. and I think that that is terrifying and you can feel that in both Florence Pugh's performance and then kind of the music, which I think is very good at giving you that unnerving feeling, which is not uncommon in horror films. No, the score is at times a character in and of itself. It's a, it's an incredible score that is an extension of everything that we are watching on screen. And, And I love that image that you painted this serene landscape 
but if you're dealing with uh, PTSD brought on by XYZ, in this case, it's a uh, death of the family, and then subconsciously she probably knows her relationship is over. So she's so she is you know not making light of PTSD in real life, but there, she's suffering from a form of PTSD in, in this serene mm-hmm. landscape, and that is life. You have to, you can't just sit you know sit in your house, lie in your bed all day long. Although we want to do that. Because it, it feels safe, I suppose. But you know, the fact of the matter is, unless you want to just completely shut down and check out of life yourself, you um, you have to go out there and face it. And so you are having to exist in life, uh, dealing with this burden. And, and so I love uh, how you painted that uh, in this beautiful landscape, dealing with this. Because that is something that we can all identify with. You know, maybe we haven't walked in on a murder suicide. You know, most of us have not done that, but we've certainly yeah. <laughs> we, we've certainly experienced um, our own griefs. It could be our own broken relationships. It could be the death of a family member. It could be the death of a friend. Uh, perhaps your entire life was rolled up in your career, and your career is now over. Uh, or you uh, you know, were very wealthy, and through a, you know a series of unfortunate events, you are now poor, kind of like uh, Kate Blanchett's character in Blue Jasmine, or even right. uh, Laura Dern's character uh, in Big Little Lies right now. So you're dealing, so, but you still have to exist in, in, in this world. And uh, so I, I think you know, we can connect with Danny's character on that level, because in some form or fashion, you know, we have all had to you know, exist in a beautiful world uh, still dealing with uh, just the ugliness uh, uh, of grief. That's yeah, it's it's brutal. Just the idea of having to be out in the open, and the other part of it being, you know, up in the north, and it's being on midsummer, which is the longest day. It just feels relentless and never ending. And obviously, there's that like funny little joke with that Will Poulter's character gets to make about how he's. He's freaking out that it feels like no time has passed, even though it's 9 p.m. and it's bright out and stuff. But (laughs) there's also the more kind of terrifying aspect of that is that they kind of have no idea how long they've been there or uh, it's really difficult to understand the passage of time. And I think that that also is a very good parallel to grief. And I've actually, I'm from Finland or like I have family in Finland. So we go every summer and we are often there on midsummer and it is just insane how bright it is all the time. It'll be like 1am and I can go for a run or just walk down the street and it's like, you know, 7pm here. It's, it's crazy. Um, But you definitely do get that feeling of just kind of being out of your element. Also, these people are probably ridiculously jet lagged. I didn't even think of that. I'm just thinking of that right now. <laughs> like, maybe maybe they didn't even need drugs. They were just tripping off of jet lag. Who knows? <laughs> oh, they they definitely they definitely could have been. Um, they, like that is uh, we could t- take that in into equation. And so they're just coping with uh, with the you know just massive jet yes, lag. <laughs> the time difference, which is I, I know parts of Europe are five and six hours. So so we know that they're at least you know functioning five and six hours ahead of what they are supposed to be. And yeah. it really it really can uh, make you uh, quite loopy, especially if you don't rest. Like you just go directly into your day. 
because your, your body is adjusting. So in addition to the time difference, you've gone so far north that your circadian rhythm is just way off because you know, you're experiencing this near 24 hours of daylight, uh, which uh, I've only heard about in places like uh, you know, Finland and Sweden and of course Alaska. And so I just, I don't have any you know, real concept of what it truly is like to, for the sun to be out, you know, 20, I think, I think in the film they even said like 23 hours or something crazy. And, um, so I, I mean, it's an, another thing that's, that's fun to think about, you know, how being jet lagged could have, uh, affected or modified their otherwise good sense of judgment. Of course, I think that the shrooms kind of impaired. <laughs> Probably that, the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> judgment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which were everywhere. I like, the, the, it was just, it was just crazy. The, um, just the availability of uh, psychotropic drugs just everywhere. And it was just like a part of their life. And it's like, is that, you know, uh, if I were to go to a midsummer celebration uh, in uh, you know, that part of the world, you know, is that, is that, is that part of it? Or did we, you know, uh, exaggerate it for purposes of filmmaking? Uh, so yeah, that, it, it was, uh, I mean, just uh, by the time the it wore off, it's like, oh, have another, have another. And, uh, you know, it makes you, it gets you hooked on it. It gets you dependent upon it. So you want to uh, stay there longer. And as we see, it was important for the commune to keep them there as long as possible to get them uh, involved in everything that was going on in order for them to work their uh, sadistic magic, so to speak. Yeah, so this commune, um, I mean, it's pretty clear that they're off from the start. <laughs> yes. But, you know, we don't see them do anything actually completely horrifying until they do that uh, sacrificial suicide thing, which the second the second they were standing on a cliff, I was like, oh, no, someone's jumping off of that. And even knowing that, I it still when they finally did it and when he lingers on the way that that first woman just sorry if people are listening to this and they haven't seen it but like they just like she just bounces mm -hmm. off the the rock that was terrifying that was one of the grossest things I've ever seen on film but again maybe maybe there's something else that out there that's worse but oh jeez when you saw her face i mean from a uh, from a visceral uh horror perspective uh, you you saw her face smash like we don't like see that. I mean, we might see it in uh, uh, a Friday the 13th movie, but it's it's very campy in how it's done. So it doesn't strike us in the same way. This, you know, this this isn't campy. This is taken no. very seriously. And and so we we, we see it just smash and. In uh, Halloween last year, you know, we saw Michael Myers step on the, the psychiatrist's head and smash it, but it cut away just as he did it and then cut back. So we don't actually see the, we don't, we don't get much of the actual smash. I think our imagination fills in a lot of the gaps. But in this, you know, we do linger on it. And not only do we linger on it, we flash back to it you know, throughout the rest of the film. And... The I absolutely loved the, the colors. We have the bright red blood against this solid white cliff and you know, light gray stone. And so it really stands out. And it was utterly shocking. I mean, I knew it was coming, 
because uh, it's like, well, because it's like it was like you. So I, You've seen I, a movie I, before, I've seen a movie before. I've seen a movie before, <laughs> but I still wasn't prepared for the degree to which it would rock me, and it really did. I'm glad I didn't look away because I think that's part of the uh, part of the experience is actually is seeing it. But uh, I was tempted to, like, I really was. I was really tempted to close my eyes, to you know, put my hand over my eyes or just or, or something because I, I knew what was coming. And then not only do we get it once, you know, we get it twice. Yep. Now, now, homeboy, if he's going to kill himself, I don't think feet first is the way to go. So I, yeah, I well, <laughs> he, he's been preparing for this for like, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> Why would you go that way? Oh, that was I, utterly painful. And then you saw how the bones just like collapsed yeah. and broke. Oh, and then man. he's he's sitting there. And uh, I mean, I knew they were going to finish him off, but I didn't know that we were each going to take swings. What was it? Like four or five swings, you know, yeah. of this uh, big sledgehammer i guess mallet's probably better Uh, a big mallet looks like a giant croquet mallet kind of like the one from the shining (laughs) and so then you know smashing uh the smashing the face and then we we see it you know it might only be up there for you know uh what amounts to like half a second or something but we do see it uh repeatedly and that that lingers with us and i love it because had had Ari Aster shied away from it, we would not be able to empathize as strongly with our American characters. And so we're seeing precisely what they're seeing and we can instantly empathize with their experience because we're saying what the fuck, the characters are saying it. And so we then have that connection with them because it strikes us, you know, just as powerfully as it strikes the characters within the story. Yeah. I was trying to think about what the purpose of these kind of short bursts of ultraviolence were. Like, why did he indulge so much? And especially because I did see an interview with Ari Aster where he was like, I don't like gratuitous violence. I don't like doing it purposeless. Like he doesn't like uh, like the really gratuitous, ultraviolent types of action films and things like that. And so I was trying to think of maybe that there's a parallel between sort of Danny's outbursts of PTSD triggered emotional break like breakdowns that we see throughout the film. Like there's one where, you know, um, Pell just says something briefly and then she kind of freaks out and she has to run away and go into the bathroom and, and hide. And those bursts of her emotion during more relative calmness kind of seems to be similar to these ultraviolet bursts in the film that is generally pretty, I would, I would never say tame, but um, certainly not like a slasher or gratuitous amounts of blood or anything like that. No, that's an excellent point. I think we are again experiencing what she is experiencing. Uh, it's a very, uh, very strong imagery, and just like she gets flashes of uh, mainly her uh, her family, you know, in her mm-hmm. mind, uh, we get those flashes, and and I feel that's why Ari Aster uh, uh, included it and would flash back to it, you know several times actually because you know that's the only way that we're going to be able to identify with how those flashes of trauma 
uh, that uh, Danny is experiencing affect her by us also experiencing something very similar. Right, uh, so, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So no, that is uh, that's why I feel uh, we have it because you know then uh, it's like uh, you know, we're we we have those same feelings and we can uh, have an idea of what's actually going on inside of her mind. Now, film is a visually driven medium, so we can't rely upon a narrator to relay this information to us because that that's for a play. Unless it's a creative narrator like Into the Woods, who's really a character in and of himself. But like we, we can't know what's going on inside her head, so we have to find a way of visualizing it. Well, what better way of visualizing what's going on in her head than by you know delivering the imagery in the manner in which Ari Aster did? That makes a lot of sense. I didn't even really think of it that way. And that does explain why she's kind of like when there's several scenes where like it'll flash to pictures of her sister or imagery of her mother and father just kind of sitting around. And I was looking at that like uh, what is going on? Is she having hallucinations or is there some sort of um, mythical thing? Not mythical, but like... uh, surreal thing going on here but I, I, I think you're right it's definitely just imagery to show what danny is is thinking of that's, yeah yeah that's really cool um i do want to jump a little ahead to the ending a bit because i do have some questions for you on that sure um and the middle part of the film i think is the part that's slightly less focused than the rest of the film um i think there's a lot of things that go on just kind of go on uh and a lot of the characters start getting axed really quick uh and pretty unceremoniously i think like chidi and uh will poulter's character they both kind of dip out very quickly um is there something you wanted to mention about any of that i don't want to like completely avoid it oh no no i i i think you know um you know it's uh, uh, it's just echoing a lot of what we've uh, we've already talked about. Uh, the the weak part of the movie, and and this is you know probably why I don't give it a ten out of ten is the uh, the plot is weak. I mean, it's a great story, but it it's a weak plot. And we start off very strong. The uh, I don't feel this is divided up into three acts because it's not following a traditional plot structure. It's not even non-linear. It's just, it's its own thing, it, seemingly. So, yeah. uh, but but if we were to kind of pigeonhole it into three acts, uh, I would say the first act is very strong. Uh, we have a, a uh, we even, uh, we have a, uh, the, the start of act two is strong, but then it kind of trails off. And then it slowly trails off for the rest of the movie because I don't feel the third act, as shocking as some of the imagery is, I don't feel story-wise that the the showdown is as compelling as the beginning. So I think all in all, yeah. we start off very strong and then we just kind of slowly, you know, kind of come down from that high for the rest of uh, the movie uh, and and yeah, and some of the characters do get picked off really quickly, and, and some and that it, some of it's even a little funny with uh, how it happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, yeah the uh, I think the ending is a, a lot of fun to talk about uh, because it is a 
Uh, again, WTF uh, uh, with the ending, even though we can kind of see some of it coming. And this is where we get some more horror elements because we now have, we introduce uh, body horror. Well, I guess we introduced it at the beginning with her sister, but after the sister, we don't get, a, we don't get any other body, uh, true body horror. We get the violence with the sacrifice, but I wouldn't characterize it as body horror like I do a lot of what we see at the end of the movie in... Um, in that temple and oh and even before and that, that uh, the chicken coop <laughs> yes the chicken coop uh, and i guess just before that i i found the the sex scene really funny because it reminded me of something okay. right out of 70s porn it's just all it was missing <laughs> was the 70s porn music and and then the whole image would have been uh, completed. And of course, now I have all more reasons to maybe uh, like uh, uh, Jack Rayner, not his character. His character is a total douchebag, but to, uh, <laughs> but, but to like him because I, I got to see, I uh, got to see a lot of what I uh, quite liked about uh, Jack Rayner uh, in the, uh, in the movie. Um, but it was just everything from going into the temple to the disrobing to all the women spanning a wide age range who are just uh, stark naked in there. And then uh, with the girl that he's uh, hooking up with, ditching his girlfriend for, um, which is kind of, this is, I, I don't mean for it to, uh, to, to sound, um, uh, to sound the way it, 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 uh, it, it uh, misogynistic, but Florence Pugh is very, very pretty. The girl mm -hmm. he hooks up with it is not nearly as pretty as Florence Pugh. So I really She also want... <laughs> looks like she's like 14. <laughs> she well she probably is cuz remember they said oh she she can now have sex because she has hit however they described uh you know her adolescence. I think they described it somehow yeah. but like she's now no she's now woman. It's like well biologically I mean it, I guess it can vary but it's usually around 14 years old. So so he's uh you know, it's there's so much wrong here and um but just she's she's not as pretty so like this this dude it's like it's like what are you thinking but anyway whatever he's thinking you know then uh but the that whole scene was just so ridiculous because we have <laughs> this one uh lady looking at his face talking to him as he's as he's uh going to town and it's like what what is this where is this coming from and then the other lady who's pushing on his ass it's just like yeah. this is just crazy and then i found oh go ahead i found that whole scene though just so like everybody in my audience laughed but for some reason i couldn't allow myself to laugh <laughs> because i was just sitting there like i am uncomfortable by everything that's <laughs> happened since then like am i supposed to i was so confused i uh this this is where i was like oh yeah i'm i'm a novice at this because yeah all of that stuff as you explain it like i'm smiling and laughing now but at the moment i was like i don't i don't even know <laughs> what 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 am i supposed to be doing am i allowed to laugh at this um but yeah that scene is absolutely wild <laughs> it is bonkers absolutely bananas and I, I think it's the thing that we needed right before shit goes down because it goes down really fast after that so i think that was the last bit of levity that we needed before we head into into the showdown which uh is uh very dark yeah so 
let's talk a little bit about that ending. Um, I've heard some sort of like conflicting things about what the director intended versus what Florence Pugh acted as. And like, I'm not totally sure how I interpret the ending. Um, This may be like a loaded question, but is the ending supposed to be a good thing? Because in a way, the burning of the the building and with uh, Christian inside of it, that is supposed to be sort of like a cathartic thing. It's sort of like a sauna where, you know, all the toxins from your body are being relieved. And then in a way, all the toxins from the community are being relieved. And so with that, she's finally relieved herself of all these bad things in her life. And now she's found a family uh, in this cult that empathizes with her. So she's not alone in her grief and she finally smiles or whatever because she has people that she can now depend on. But those people are, you know, murdering cultists. Uh, mm-hmm. So is is this a good thing in your opinion or what's the kind of thesis or, of this? I, I'm sort of confused. No, I I think it's um I I think it's a terrifying prospect and and I don't okay. find it to be a positive ending um at all. I think ultimately the reason why Danny smiles is that she found what she was looking for uh acceptance uh family and that's why she smiles because she was, you know, an orphan. I mean, even when we, if we were to lose our entire family, no matter what age we are, part of us feels like an orphan. So she, uh, so she has that, that, those, that, that kind of or, an orphan feeling. So she's looking for somebody to accept her. Obviously, Christian doesn't accept her for who she is. Uh, the rest of the friends don't accept her for who she is, but the commune does. Now, granted, they have ulterior motives, but in her mind, you know, they accept her for who she is. And they are now going to be her family. And by uh, all the friends dying, uh, by uh, by Christian dying, she has put away her old life because she's an, she, she was an orphan. Uh, she didn't seem like she had any friends except for Christian's friends. So, and whoever um, she was talking to on the phone, yes, I guess. Whoever yeah. she was talking to on the phone. And so that is all gone. She has, she has killed it all. Uh, subconsciously, I think she knew her relationship was over, but she couldn't admit it because if she admitted it, then she would be suffering rejection. She would lose that connection and she already lost her family. She didn't want to lose her boyfriend too because then she would really feel alone. Uh, right. so, so this was a way for her to put everything away, to uh, to kill off that part of her life and accept this community um, uh, of cultists as her new life, as her new family. And that's why she smiles. And that's how she's coping with her grief. She, um, instead of coping with her grief, uh, through a healthy, you know, means instead of going through the, uh, five stages of grief that we all learned in psych 101, you know, she's kind of, she's going way, way off, uh, way off beat. And she is going to kind of write her own path to, um, to, uh, you know, to dealing with uh, the the loss of everybody in her life. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I'm confused because the idea of removing her from the toxic relationship seems to suggest that is she, is she in a better place now or just a different place? It's a different place. I, I think uh, whether whether male or female, you know, we. 
there are people who are drawn to um, toxic relationships. You know, we see it where they go from one to the other. And and and, and I I'm not a psychologist, but from what I know, studying media and studying film is you know, you're looking for acceptance. You're looking for connection. You're looking to not be alone. You're looking to fill this void in your life however you can. And that often leads you uh, to, I mean, in this case, you have a female character, but it's not, it, it could be a male or female, but you're, and you're drawn to these toxic relationships. And so we do, we see her perpetuating the problem that she had and she's going to continue to have. It's just, uh, it's got a temporary, you know, bandaid on it and maybe she'll uh, never deal with it, but that doesn't take away from, the void that she has in her life. And so she's going to keep uh, sticking with this commune to deal with that because she isn't of a healthy enough mind to face it. Uh, and you could even say the same thing about uh, the heavy drug use in the movie. So you just keep medicating it, you're self-medicating, you're self-medicating, you're self-medicating yeah. instead of dealing with the cause. You're just treating the symptoms. And it reminds me of uh, Dr. Frankenfurter's line uh, in Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, that he uh, can uh, uh, cure the, uh, the, uh, the cause, but not the symptoms, elevator up. And so, so she's uh, <laughs> uh, dealing with, um, and so, so I think that's, that's why it's, it's not just drug use for drug use. It, is, it serves a purpose. And so she is self-medicating hmm. through the use of this cult. And then she's also self-medicating through the use of all of these. And these aren't just like, this is just like smoking weed. These are hardcore psychotropic drugs. And she's just, you know, keeps right. on um, uh, just going, you know, just uh, ingesting it and experiencing it just like you know, the rest of her friends. But I think deep down, you know, we see an individual who uh, is not coping um, through healthy means. And when you don't cope with your grief through healthy means, this is an exploration of what could you know, possibly happen to you. So there's also the idea that the community as a whole is kind of like one and one with the earth. And not only is the burning of the Tempe or temple or whatever, um, a purge of Danny's toxins, but it's also sort of like the toxins of the commune. And that's why they kind of burn, uh, what's his name? The one who peed on the, uh, Mark, the sacred religious uh, tree, which was a hilarious scene. Yes. Um, <laughs> so why did they have to sacrifice two of the Harga people, like just innocence? And then, well, I mean, I guess actually four of them. Um, what was that whole thing? And I'm also asking two questions. So I, I acknowledge that. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> Why did those two British people get killed? Like, to me, they didn't seem to do anything that was deserving of it. Was it just the commune's plan to kill everybody? Or was there some sort of culpability for all the people who were put into that temple? That was like six questions. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I get what you're going at. Uh, we could look at it uh, one way that nobody leaves this place. So then so everybody who comes there has to die that's probably uh, okay. overly simplifying everything um you could also look at it uh from uh from the practice of a cult and cults have 
you know, uh, you know, sacrificial practices. And this sounds like a sacrificial practice, which has gone back for uh, hundreds of years, millennia after millennia, you know, a thousand years or more, however far back, you know, this tradition goes. And according to tradition, you have nine sacrifices. Um, uh, not The reason why it's nine sacrifices is it could be a play off of uh, the Trinity and Christianity. So you have the number three. So you're going to play around with the number three. So you're going to say multiply three times three. Well, that gives you nine. So perhaps you're, you're playing around with the, uh, uh, with that idea. So that's why you have to have nine, uh, nine sacrifices. Uh, the nine could also, uh, represent, uh, uh something else within, uh, within their culture. And so there, uh, so it could could be you know, connect with numbers or seasons or you know, uh, there's uh, any any uh, number of reasons why uh, nine, but uh, it had to uh, it had to be nine. Uh, it could also be well, there's four seasons, so maybe we have like two like two sacrifices per season, but then we have kind of our um, our ultimate sacrifice, which in this case was uh, Danny selecting Christian. So I, I don't I, I don't know I, I don't think we have an answer for that but I think you know it was it wasn't for anything that somebody did uh, as much as it was their tradition is simply to have nine sacrifices of, oh actually uh, this is a uh, didn't he doesn't he say this is a ceremony that happens every is it, uh, 90, ninety years, years. yeah so you're right. maybe nine could come from that so I think we have a lot of different ideas where the number nine could come from. But, um, I mean, but just pick one. Am I making this up or did in hereditary was, um, that's a bit of a spoiler. Okay. Spoiler for hereditary in case you haven't seen it. Skip ahead a minute. Um, wasn't Payman the, the deity at the end? Wasn't he like one of the nine gods? of something am i making that up does have you seen that film recently uh i have not seen it recently okay. so i'm afraid i can't comment on that but that certainly Damn. sounds like something that ariaster would definitely do yeah okay well yeah so maybe this is the uh hereditary cinematic universe in the making or something <laughs> we'll get nine films each about a different pagan god <laughs> there you go hey i wouldn't surprise you everybody wants a cinematic universe these days yeah a24 is in in need of a cinematic universe so yeah they uh they don't, they don't they don't have one but this this could be it i mean uh some of them are loosely connected like we have um like i've seen several people read that the witch is connected with black coat's daughter which is connected with hereditary so perhaps you know you know maybe you know we're gonna find out one day and say oh wait a minute this is all a cinematic universe uh so uh i think there's a lot of shared elements uh between uh many other films which uh you uh you could read uh, even in um it comes at night you have black philip in it comes at night you've got that black goat so that that, that could be connected as well so uh but maybe we'll find out one day okay <laughs> Um, so I guess I just have a couple questions about where you think, like what happens next? Because I'm a little, what happened to last summer's maid queen? Why is she not around or was she around and they just kind of move on? What's the deal with that? That's a good question. I, I wanted to be introduced to last year's May queen, but, um, but I, you know, we never were. Uh, so per, so perhaps she, uh, maybe she goes on to be royalty, uh, like uh, 
maybe uh, the, uh, the the woman who sacrificed herself on the cliff. Perhaps she was a past May Queen. Uh, so um, so that is like going to be her duty uh, one day is to is to sacrifice herself. Uh, I I think um, her role uh, could be largely one of uh, pageantry and ceremony. Uh, perhaps she becomes a a priestess of sorts, and I think she would uh, perhaps be somebody who would come back to America and to find more people to bring over. Because after all, the reason we had that you know wacky sex scene is because we need to introduce uh, new blood into this commune right. to uh, to mitigate the inbreeding. So maybe she is responsible uh, for that, or she is outside blood. So maybe she will you know, be a mate for somebody to produce, uh, you know, more you know, more children. And so I, I think she's uh, has a lot of different directions that uh, that she could go. Um, but uh, but I think ultimately it's gonna wind up as a um, I can see her being a sacrifice, a, a self sacrifice one day herself. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure she'll have a great time until then. <laughs> um, we should probably wrap up a little bit here. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, talk about before moving on to the point two section? Oh, no. Uh, it was a fun conversation. I uh, was uh, really excited to talk about it. And, and as we've seen, we, we set out to talk about like A, B, and C, but while we're doing that, we discover X, Y, Z. There, there's so much yeah. to unpack in this movie, and it is really difficult to keep it all down to a minimal amount of time because there is just so much there, uh, and it's all equally engaging. Yeah. The last little thing I wanted to point out was that Pell, uh, that's the, the guy who kind of brought them all there, he pointed out that his parents died in a fire, and that's how he was an orphan. So I thought that was a nice little touch that maybe his parents were two of the people that were volunteers at some point. That um, is very true. So felt like a little bit of a sleuth when I thought, thought that up. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I will just end with a, with a kind of silly question. Um, so let's say a friend calls you up and he asks you to go on a vacation with him to some tiny town in Sweden. Uh, you know, he says like, oh, yeah, it's going to be fun. There's a, a little festival there. And then when you ask, he says he's never heard of this film, Midsummer. Would you go? Ooh, um, that's, a, that's a tough one. I think I might uh, visit this village on Google Earth first to try to get yeah. an idea of what I may be getting myself into. But I'm, I'm one who... Uh, uh, loves the feeling of intrigue. So I think I probably would go. I just think I might uh, uh, prepare, uh, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Okay, interesting. So then maybe that's uh, a similar answer to this question, that if you had to live through one of these or try to live through one of these, either Hereditary or Midsummer, which one would you pick? Uh, I think I, I think I'd pick hereditary. I'm yeah. much less scared of an individual than I am an entire commune of psychos. That, that makes sense. <laughs> I think, I think I agree with that one. Um, I probably wouldn't go, go to Sweden though. I've been to Sweden. It's, it's fine. Um, we can, I, I can, I can skip out on the, the one that 
reminds me of midsummer. So <laughs> um, I wonder if Sweden's tourism is going to drop after this. <laughs> oh, I bet if anything, it's going to go up. Uh, like uh, dark tourism is is really popular. It's like all the dumbasses that went to the Forbidden Zone or whatever it's called after Chernobyl. Yes, I- exactly. I mean, we know what happens. I mean, we we, we saw uh, you know Jesse McCartney in the Chernobyl Diaries, so we know exactly what's over there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do think it's interesting that this film, unlike Hereditary, I, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but there's not really anything that is theoretically impossible in this film. Right? No, it's it's all it it's pretty realistic. It's all, it's all technically possible. Mm-hmm. It's very unlikely, but it's possible. So yes. that one creepy. All right. Um so let's move on to the point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. So Ryan, what have you been watching recently? Uh Big Little Lies, but as you and I have pointed out, we haven't seen the uh, uh the episode from the J- July seventh, last uh last night's episode. Uh, so yeah. we're uh, so we're both at the same uh, both at the same position. I uh, I got hooked to Pretty Little Lies when I watched um, when I saw season one. Big Little Lies. Uh, big yeah, Big Little Lies. Uh, <laughs> Very different shows. Uh, but I also like Pretty Little Liars. Said so I find this to be adult Pretty Little Liars. Yeah, it's fair. I watched season one not that long ago because I had I saw the trailer for season two while I was watching Game of Thrones. And I usually unsubscribe after Game of Thrones. But when I saw the cast of Big Little Lies, I'm like, I- I've got to watch this show. So while uh, so soon as Game of Thrones was over, actually, I might have started watching it uh, during the week. But I watched season one. I just binged it within a few days. So like this, the the acting is outstanding. Uh, this plot is intriguing. I love this setting that it's like, I just, this is a world that I am not a part of, but I believe that this world that we're watching on TV exists. And so everything about it, I just love so much. And then it's like, well, I got to stick around for season two. So HBO figured out a way to get me to, um, to, to, to stay subscribed uh, after Game of Thrones. And I also watched Cher- Chernobyl. I watched recently. So I've uh, just been taking advantage of my uh, HBO subscription, which I typically just cancel as soon as Game of Thrones is over. But HBO got smart; they they know how to know how to keep me around. Yeah, I've been very very satisfied with HBO post Game of Thrones, both with Chernobyl and Big Little Lies. I did something very similar to you with Big Little Lies, um, although it was like a year ago. But I just binged it, maybe in two days. It wasn't one of those shows that I like absolutely loved. It was one of those shows that I watched because I could just admire the talent of just the acting and the atmosphere and everything like that. But watching it week to week now in season two, I adore this show. And I'm not sure if if it's just that I know the characters a little bit better or that you kind of get to sit with the like you're forced to sit with the episodes and what happens in them a little more since you're watching week to week. But um, yeah, I just, I love this show. I think it's definitely a show to watch if you like just watching people act. All these characters are just so layered. And there's a podcast called Still Watching that Vanity Fair puts on with uh, Joanna Robinson, who just makes podcast gold. Um, And so I listen every week to that and they just have really good conversations about the show but they point out that you know like what's the last show of this caliber that has six 
female leads. And yeah, I just, I think this show is like a gift. <laughs> oh, it is. Especially with Meryl Streep. And she is just, uh, her, just, she adds just so much weight to the show. And uh, she... Which is uh, saying something. Yeah, because the part, the role, uh, Mary Louise, isn't a huge role, yet... Every moment that she is on screen, she just commands it. Has such a, a phenomenal uh, screen presence, and just the little thing she says. I mean, the the number of her lines could maybe fill up, you know, two pages. Maybe uh, it's just it, she doesn't say a lot. She doesn't say a lot, but she does, and it's uh, through yeah. the her nonverbal communication, which is just as powerful as how she delivers. Uh, those very few yet very poignant lines. Yeah. So the other show that I've been watching in my free time is I've started from season one again of watching How I Met Your Mother. Ah. Have you seen the show? Uh, I have. Uh, just uh, here and there, I uh, must confess I was not a dedicated watcher. I would uh, watch it on TV if I couldn't find anything else to watch. I'm like, okay, well, that's on. So then I turn it on. It, uh, I didn't, um, didn't quite get into it, and I typically uh, like sitcoms. So uh, I look back now and I wonder, well, why didn't I really get into this? Because I, I love rewatching shows. I rewatch The Golden Girls perpetually, and <laughs> um, and if The Nanny was streaming, I would rewatch it. But I don't think The Nanny is streaming anywhere. Uh, but uh, that and I rewatch Star Trek TNG all the time. So I, I have the the shows like that that I will constantly rewatch. And um, and, I, and I love the American sitcom, which is kind of disappearing, you know, uh, as as yeah. we speak. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think um, I just missed it somehow. And so I, I thought of going back and watching it all the way through instead of I just I would watch it just when it just happened to be on, I suppose. So. I watched this kind of before Netflix was a thing. Um, it definitely feels right now very much like a 2000s show. Um, but it was one of those shows that, you know, I'd, I'd watch it on if it came on in the afternoon and I needed some time to watch it. And so I never really watched it sequentially. So I'm only through season one right now. Um, but it is interesting to rewatch the show from the start when you know where the show is going and then where like many of those actors go so like jason siegel um is much bigger now and specifically uh kobe smolders she's much bigger than she was back then but the thing that i really admire about the show is that it's a very clever show and it is it is a sitcom it's got the laugh track um it's a cbs show so there's some of that stuff that both in terms of uh political correctness doesn't really age that well. Um, but then also just like in terms of storytelling doesn't age that well. But I really like how it embraces the idea that this is a story that he's telling to his kids. And it plays around with a lot of ideas that a lot of shows don't like the reliability of the narrator and sort of nonlinear storytelling and like telling other people a story and leaving out certain things. And it's all played to comic effect. And it's very smart. And um, I didn't realize this at the time, but it's sort of unexpected, but not totally surprising that Phil Lord and Chris Miller are executive producers of this. And they also wrote several episodes. So it's very much that type of humor. And that sensibility is really refreshing. And I just 
like it. I, I started it again just because Friends is sort of my go-to repeat watch. Uh, and I plowed through that recently. I like to have little 25-minute shows that I can watch mm-hmm. while I'm eating dinner or working that I don't really have to focus on. So it's like, well, let's try this one. But yeah, I so far I've really enjoyed it. I'm laughing a lot. This show is kind of notorious for having a terrible ending. And reflecting on that, I think that this show would have been excellent if it had stopped after three seasons. Uh, and that's not because the later seasons are bad necessarily. It's just that the first season was so primed for what I know the ending of the show to be. And watching it again, you can you can see how the ending that they went to makes sense based on that first uh, season. I'm trying to keep it as vague as possible since mm-hmm. he said you uh, hadn't seen it. Um, but because the show got so big, you know, they kind of things get really ridiculous. They started stretching things out. And then it sort of had that lost thing where the um, the breadcrumbs that led up to it were so much more interesting than the ultimate payoff. So, but yeah, I mean, I would recommend giving it a go. It's on Hulu and it's a light little show to, you know, just have on in the background. So yeah, uh, another light little show that uh, I like watching because it is uh, it is uh, so short is um, a, a friend of mine uh, recommended to me the BuzzFeed Unsolved series. I don't know if you've seen any of those huh. episodes, no. but there's a BuzzFeed Unsolved True Crime and BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural. And uh, the hosts are so entertaining. They, they truly make the show. The two guys are so much fun to watch. And uh, most of the episodes are about 15 to 20 minutes. Some of them are a little longer, like 25 minutes. But they go through, um, like with true crime, they're going through famous cases. And they have a a fun approach to true crime. Because true crime has been done and done again. I mean, ID has certainly made a business model out of it. And ID is one of those channels that once I start watching it, I get sucked in forever, and perhaps for <laughs> days. Um, and so their model works. Uh, I think a, a lot about the true crime are just kind of like, oh, this is like the same, the same true crime thing over and over. Well, they have a nice, fun approach to it. That you can mostly listen to, so I recommend it as something that if you have the like, you know, the the luxury or the freedom to uh, kind of passively watch something or listen to something while you're at work, it's a great one to put on because you don't really have to watch it. So you know, I'll I'll put on uh, Buzz uh, Buzzfeed Unsolved, uh, True Crime and Supernatural. They're uh, they're fun, but and they're short, and uh, it's available on Amazon Prime. At uh, no additional no additional cost, you just type in BuzzFeed Unsolved, and there's the the two series, and I, I like it. I've just recently uh, started watching it again after a friend recommended it to me, and and it's and it's good to have on um, at work or even if it uh if you have a uh, unlimited data or a lot of data on your phone plan and you can stream while you're you know in the car. It's something you could yeah, again. Don't watch it while you're driving; it's dangerous. But you could you could listen to it, and you're and you'll get the and, and you'll get everything because it's it's very much dialogue driven. Cool. I'll uh, I'll give that a go. So this has been our review of Midsummer. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm I'm glad you were able to help me through this film. It's incredibly confusing. So I hope I wasn't too much of a pain for you. Um, and you know, hopefully, we can do this again sometime. Is is there anything you'd like to plug? Sure. Uh, the, your listeners can connect with me on Twitter. My handle is at um, rlterry1. Uh, love to uh, to uh, to make a connection with you uh, through uh, you know engaging uh, content 
and uh, just uh, comments. And I uh, love seeing uh, what you're watching. And then always feel free to comment on my stuff or send me a direct message. Yeah, I uh, uh, film Twitter is a fun place, but film Twitter is only as much fun as uh, as those who uh, contribute to it. So uh, I count on new people contributing all the time to continue growing the film Twitter family. Uh, your uh, listeners can also connect with me on my blog, which is rltterryrealview.com, uh, uh, where you can uh, see uh, the articles I'm writing on current movies and past movies. Uh, that's I, uh, I've been blogging uh, since I took a multimedia journalism class in grad school. And I just started then and have uh, continued since. So there's uh, close to 400 articles at this point, some of which are even wow. peer-reviewed. So, uh, so uh, feel free to connect with me on on there. And so, yeah, so just uh, join the conversation with me and the rest of Hashtag Film Twitter. And uh, let me know uh, what you think about movies. And it's been a pleasure being on the show. I'm going to make it a point to uh, subscribe so I can uh, listen to uh, your past episodes and look forward to what you have coming out in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. And I will provide those links in the um, show notes. So just check that out there. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, And you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMaraPod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMaraPod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. And you can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at MovieMarathoners.Podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing, and any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when we run through, I'm not quite sure yet, uh, I may take a bit of a break because I'm going on vacation very soon, but I may try and get something out there before I leave. So stay tuned. Until then, bye. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh, yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.